Hey everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to episode number 29 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Rage channel. You can find this pro... Huh? Well, you're here, so you found us. So you know where to find us. You find us where stuff has noise. We have, uh, we have noise and places, you know, deal with noise and that's where you'll find us. Uh, today we've got a, uh, yeah, sort of special episode. We're going to be discussing a two-parter, uh, a, uh, sort of obscure miniseries starring Lois Lane from 1986. Um... I think it came out post-crisis, but still takes place in the pre-crisis, but that's really not the reason we're going to get into this one. We're, uh, we're actually going to be looking at this one because the subject matter uh, of, these, of these, uh, these two issues uh, sort of ties into one of the cornerstones of my undergrad studies. Uh, I, I talked about this, I think, way back in the first episode, that the entire... Uh, you know, the, the, the seminal reasons why Chris's on Infinite Earth started was because I was dealing with some very, very, very hard uh, writer's block and burnout, uh, academically uh, speaking. I had been taking uh, a few forensic psychology classes, and, uh, you know, before I go too deep into that, uh, forensic psychology was... Uh, never something I really looked for as a uh, as a, as an option for study. It was uh, one of those pieces of the psychology uh, track, you know, the the graduation track that, to be completely honest, uh, intimidated me uh, beyond belief. Now it's been said, and I've said it a time or two. Uh, you know, psychology is uh, it can be looked at as a soft science. You know, there's a uh, Everybody reacts different to certain stimuli and certain treatment and behaviors, you know. You know, we all snowflakes. We all act different. So not everything's going to work with everybody. So there's, in as far as hard and fast, you know, rules, I mean, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of nebulous because different things work with different people. But forensic psychology always felt a bit firmer, at least to me, uh, if, if you're on an undergrad track uh, for a science degree, you're going to know that a lot of your studies are going to be predicated in theory. So it's all theory, all, um, I don't know, maybe educated conjecture uh, might be a good way of saying it. Nothing you could really take to the bank with, with, a, with a softer science because, like I said, not everything's going to work with everybody. But the forensic bent of it, it feels realer. It feels like it's more substantial, and uh, you 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 do a lot of things like profiling and a lot of the things. That, and again, everybody's different, so not everybody is going to fall a hundred percent into a you know one canister or the other. But uh, you know, uh, generally speaking, there's there's a science to it, and uh, I <laughs> I I think I work a little bit better on the softer side because. If you know me personally, I, I am very, very poor at making definitive statements. Um, I will ride the fence as long as I'm allowed to, and uh, I'm perfectly fine uh, discussing potential theories uh, till the cows come home without actually drawing a line and making a definitive statement at the other end. So the idea of having to take a forensic science class or forensic psychology class was very intimidating to me but once i did i absolutely fell in love with it and uh 
I, I will always use that if I'm ever talking to, you know, a family member or a friend who is struggling in high school or, or even in their, you know, their freshman year of college, just complaining that, oh, why do I have to take this math class? Why do I have to take this particular history class? And uh, in taking this forensic psychology course, I was able to, or these, these few actually, I was able to kind of qualify you know, the reasons why you take these classes you don't think you need because you might find out you've got a passion for it. And uh, I very much did have a passion for forensic psychology uh, to the point where it became a primary focus and it almost became my uh, my post-grad studies. Uh, you know, then I, I, you know, I met Amber Hagerman or Hagerman. This is a the uh, girl who went missing in the late 90s, uh, the Amber Alert system is uh, sort of kind of named in her honor, but not, but, you know, but is, <laughs> it's it's weird. But uh, I became hooked on this case, and uh, I, I, I told this story before, but I got very close to this case. I, uh, you know, I, I'm so, you know, my peanut brain, I, I thought I could solve it, you know, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But, uh... I got very stuck on this case, and I couldn't put it to bed. You know, I had to write up a a report and my findings and a profile, and I couldn't quite, uh, I couldn't stick the landing because, I don't know, maybe I was just too close to it. Maybe I was afraid that once I did figure out what I wanted to say that I'd be done with it and I wasn't quite ready to put it away yet, and I, it just drove me nuts. So that's how I turned to writing about comics, just to, you know, kind of lube the tubes, you know, get everything, get everything flowing again, and, uh, be able to, uh, to move on, you know? Now, that was one of the cornerstones of my, my, uh, undergrad studies. Another of my, uh, cornerstones, which is what I want to talk about, uh, more here, is, uh, I, I started my undergrad in 2011, and, uh, in the years around that is when uh, the proliferation of smartphones hit, at least in my world. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure people had iPhones years and years before that, or as many years as there were iPhones before that. But uh, the ubiquitous nature of iPhones and smartphones, Androids, whatever you want to call, uh, made it so uh, things like social media were no longer just something that people online used. It was just everybody used them. I mean, your parents used them, your grandparents used them, and it really became a way of life. And, uh, you know, being the uh, perceptive 31-year-old chap that I was, uh, I was always the guy at the family gatherings or at the parties who, whenever phones came out and Facebook started to come up, I would be that guy that everybody loved to be around who would say, hey, you know, you really probably shouldn't be doing that so much. <laughs> you know, I was really uh, kind of a jerk about it, the, uh, you know, the smartest guy in the room about everything, and uh, just the, uh, you know, the, the meme of the robot hammering the no fun allowed sign into the lawn. That was, uh, that was basically my role, uh, because I felt very strongly about it, but I was also very uneducated on exactly what social media comprised of, or was comprised of, or is comprised of, as it turns out. But what I was studying was, uh, you know, we talked last week about addiction, and I know that in my personality, I, I have a very addictive personality, 
which is why I've never <laughs> messed around with, you know, narcotics or hard narcotics. And uh, I never drank, never smoked because I knew that me, I, I can, I can get, I, I can get addicted very quickly. I mean, I'm right now. I'm like 150 hours into the latest Assassin's Creed game. There's no reason why I should be that many hours into a video game, but I am because it's, it's just the way I am. I'm very addicted. I want to do everything I can in this game to, uh, to you know, I don't know, get my money's worth or just to experience it. And so I know that I do have a bent towards addiction, at least you know, in this sort of a realm. So I, I was studying the addictive qualities of, uh, of social media use uh, among children uh, because uh, it, rather than go into the uh, forensic psychology field, I've, uh, I've kind of diverted into school psychology, child psychology, and uh, I just found that that's, it's probably going to be easier to find work uh, once I'm done. And also, uh, uh, you know, you're gonna, you want to give me summers and holidays off? I'll, I'll take that, you know? I... <laughs> I, I don't mind uh, not having to come to work on Christmas. I've worked enough Christmases in my life, so if you want to give me Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the summer off, I, I'm, where do I sign? You know, I'm down. But uh, you know, going back to uh, the potential for uh, addiction with social media, I, I, you know, the studies weren't as uh, they weren't as readily available back in 2011 because. Yeah, you know, the smartphone was still in its relative infancy. Uh, it, it still is today. I would I would argue that you know smartphone technology is still in its infancy. Even though Apple's like on its fifty seventh phone, it's still in its infancy. It's still we're st- we're still getting the uh, we're still hammering the dents out. You know, we're still learning every single time. So from the few studies I was able to to grab, uh, there were studies done on children with social media use and. Uh, you know, they faced things like withdrawals if they were uh, not allowed to uh, to engage. Um, it also, uh, what I was most passionate about with this was uh, I always wanted to do a study where I could compare uh, self-efficacies within a person. Now, your self-efficacy is different than your self-esteem, where as uh, esteem is how you feel about yourself, efficacy is the potential you see in yourself, in a way. It's how far you think you could go in life. And uh, I wanted to compare a person's real-life self-efficacy and their online self-efficacy. And there, in, in psychology, there's something called a, a Q-sort technique, which uh, I don't know how widely it's used. It's something that caught my eye in a textbook, and I never really let it go. It's uh, basically a deck of cards with... Uh, qualities and traits on them so it could be like uh you know you you could be successful or you could be wealthy it's just what you think you could achieve in life you have these the the q sort technique is to where you look at the cards you pick out the cards that you think you are now all the traits you know i'm caring i'm compassionate i'm a hard worker i'm creative and then you take a look at the deck as your ideal self or your your actualized self and you compare so if like if you were creative now or you're not creative now but you want to be creative creative in your ideal actualization that that becomes one of your goals you want to add that to your deck so you know i'm taking way too long to explain this uh, and i'm not even sure if uh 
if I'm making half a lick of sense, because this is just something that's been running through my head for almost a decade now. You'd have these two decks of cards, and you look at what your potential is offline, and you look at your potential online. So you can see if there is any differentiation. If you are a different person online, if you are, if you have a different actualization online, and uh, I never really explored it. Uh, like I said, so much of your undergrad in a science degree is theory. So, you know, I, I did pitch the theory, and uh, people thought it was interesting. But I never actually did it because, you know, <laughs> I don't think people are lining up to, uh, to have a, uh, you know, a college sophomore uh, analyze them. Uh, despite the fact that uh, most of the people I know want me to analyze their dreams because they know that I'm in psychology. But uh, regardless of that... This is what I was really geared to, was uh, the idea that social media in and of itself was uh, mostly bad. Uh, a thing that is uh, a thing that will hurt people. A- and there are arguments for that. And I, and I maintain that, you know, in 30 years when, when, we're, we're like, when we're watching like a presidential debate and they're bringing up tweets from 20, you know, 2015... <laughs> where they might have said something offensive or something that will be considered offensive in 30 years. I, I don't think it's heading in a good direction, but uh, it's not all bad. <laughs> and uh, as an avid user of, uh, of the uh, applications, you know, there, there is good and there is bad. And we'll, we'll get into that as we uh, continue this uh, discussion. Rather than go like line by line over what I found and what I've learned uh, in research... We'll just, uh, you know, suffice it to say, I did a lot of papers on this subject and uh, a lot of studies, uh, probably, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of pages of uh, peer-reviewed research that I had to go through and uh, felt like I really had a handle on the concept uh, of, uh, of what social media could do to a person who, uh, the, th- the thing that I was, like I said, the different efficacies, the different actualizations, um, things like low self-esteem, things like depression, all that stuff kind of kind of intersects with uh, around that. So that was where I wanted to. That's where I wanted to play, and that's where I wanted to learn, and that's where I wanted to kind of thrive with my research. And we can jump ahead to my senior year, or coming up to my senior year, where if you've been to college, you've probably done, or if you've finished college, you've probably done a capstone project it's basically an entire class uh based around one single project and you know considering that 90 percent of my written work had been about one subject i figured okay i i really need to <laughs> i really need to move it to the next level here because i don't want to self-plagiarize i don't want to repeat myself um so i really needed to up the uh the up the information, the data, and uh, last week we did discuss how the best research sometimes is me search. And we're in you know mid 2016. I was going to graduate a year later, and uh, I figured okay maybe I need to get an inside look at this sort of a phenomenon. And it just so happened that I had. Just started a blog a couple months earlier, so I figured, you know, maybe it's time to reactivate the uh, long-dormant Twitter account 
and maybe get back out there. You know, maybe uh, see how this all plays out and have, you know, anecdotal information isn't generally something that they want in a research paper unless, you know, unless the anecdote is very, very, uh, I don't know, uh, well populated. You know, if, if a lot of people have it, that, that's when it becomes you know, empirical. But if it's just me, if it's just Chris's hot take, that's a, you know, that, that might be a section of a show, but it's definitely not going to be a section of a research paper un- unless I, you know, unless I get some letters before and after my name. But uh, I wanted to have, I wanted to at least be able to speak uh, eloquently or uh, less ignorantly, I should say. I wanted to be able to speak with... Uh, not so much authority, but with experience. Uh, up to that point, I think I, I opened a Twitter account like in t- 2009, and I had like one tweet, and I thought it was very clever. It was a, uh, it was a uh, zoo books has been overestimating my interest in elephants for over 30 years. That was my only tweet, you know, uh, and I still stand by that. Zoo books, come on, elephants. Is that really the book you want to start with? But uh, that was what I had, and. I think I was following, like, a local pizza place, uh, a couple of comic stores, a bagel store, <laughs> you know. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't out there. I wasn't using it the way people use it. And so I decided that maybe it's time to learn a little bit, you know, do a little bit of me search, try to uh, figure out just what it is about these applications that people can lose themselves in. And people can uh, redefine themselves uh, by using. And I tell you what, it did not take me long to get sucked in. I tried Facebook. I don't get Facebook. I have never understood what Facebook is. Um, so, and it's just the uh, the interface of it. It doesn't really. Uh, I don't know. I just I just don't like it. I, I it's not a you know, you know I'm not bowling up my fist going or Facebook. I just uh, don't really get it. Um, I don't know where things go when you send it out. I don't know who sees it. I don't know if anybody sees it. I don't know what it is. So I, I Twitter's easier for me. So in order to you know get out there and, and learn and experience, um, I just I, I started by looking for people to follow, and I don't know anybody. That's that's you know that's one of the things about me is in real life and in fake life, I know very few people. <laughs> And it's just a, I mean, it's a wonder I'm talking to people right now. I I just don't know people. So I needed to find people to follow so I can get a feel for this. And uh, I feel like I'm like Balky Bartokamas here uh, experiencing MTV for the first time. Just what is this, you know? Uh, So I decided to follow a podcaster that I listened to. Uh, The first podcaster I ever listened to, I, I think I told this story a time or two as well. A fellow by the name of Rob O'Hara. He uh, goes by the name Flack. He's uh, at Commodork, Commodork on uh, Twitter. And uh, I discovered his podcast on the Digital Press forums. It's a video game store in New Jersey. And he was the first podcast. I He was the first time I ever saw the word podcast. It was the first time I ever listened to a podcast. And uh He's one of the handful of podcasts that I, I, you know, I've never stopped listening to uh, in all the years. And I figured, you know, I, he always says that he's got a Twitter handle at Commodore, so I'll follow it. 
so there you go. I follow I follow Rob O'Hara, and uh, so now I'm following you know Rob, a pizza place, a bagel store, and maybe a comic store, and that's <laughs> that's about the size of it. And uh, and a few minutes later, my computer made this very weird noise. And and I I had bought a new computer for the last couple of years of my undergrad, and I'm still using it today. Uh, it's a you know middle of the line deal, but it just to, to get me through because my older my other computer was getting a little bit long in the tooth, and uh, you know the Microsoft Office suite uh, really eats up a lot of a, a computer's chugging power sometimes. So uh, anytime I was trying to write a paper, I'd have to like open Word, then go make some coffee. You know, go flip some pancakes, then come back and hopefully Word would be open. Not all the time, though. So I got this new computer, and I never really played with it. I never really explored what it could do. You know, I think I you know, I wrote some papers on it. I maybe read some wrestling news online, and I, I probably watched some, uh, some Dragon Quest Let's Plays on YouTube or something. But I really didn't use it all that much. So I didn't know what a notification sound was. So all of a sudden, my computer makes this boop boop sound, and I didn't know what in the hell it was. And I come back around, and it's, and it said, Rob O'Hara followed you. I was like, whoa. You know, I, it, it was right then that it was like, okay, I, I kind of get it. Because it was like a thrill. It's like, wow, this, I've been listening to this dude for years, and, and, and he's following me, and I, I've got a stupid Zoo Books tweet up? What is this? It's, a, it's just very, uh, it's very satisfying. And, and uh, that's kind of... That's kind of how you start tumbling down the well Is that It is very satisfying And so As we move forward I I labored over sending out Any sort of a notification that I had A That I had a blog post You know And you know, I send it out and you know, nothing, nothing happens Because you know, nobody's, nobody knows who I am Nobody's following me, I'm not following anybody And uh and when you start a blog, uh, if, if you're anything like me, which is to say, I hope you're not anything like me in this sort of regard, but uh, you you labor over your numbers. And uh, while, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, it's, uh, you know, if you're a content creator, you're supposed to be doing everything for you first. You know, it's always about, you know, you, you do this for you, you do this for the joy, for the love, and all that stuff, but... Uh, I don't think you'll meet a content creator out there who will say that they don't want anybody to see what they do. You know, if they were to say, yeah, I put stuff out there and I don't care if anybody sees it. I'm not going to say they're lying through their teeth, but, you know, it, it's really cool when somebody interacts with something that you created. Um, you know, I I told the story a time or two that uh, I wrote a piece about the death of Superman and Dan Jurgens read it. I mean, I read Dan Jurgens' take on this death, and he read my take on it. It's just phenomenal, you know, to consider that uh, that there is just such uh, I don't even know the word here, just a uh, congruity. I I don't know, um, but but you know, you you get hooked on tracking your numbers, and a few times a day, or maybe more than a few times a day, you check to see if anybody's read what you've written, and uh, you know, I remember. Just being thrilled when I had one visitor And for all I know, you know, law of averages Like, at least half of your views, half of your hits are bots You know, I think that's just, it just goes without saying So, I mean, this one hit 
very well could have been a bot. It probably was. But the fact that there was one hit there and it wasn't me, it blew my mind. Because uh, I blogged probably mid-2000s, and uh, this is before social media really took off, so... It, you know, so you'd get engagement on a blog in the form of uh, comments. You know, you'd get comments. You'd get a, hey, I agree. Hey, I don't agree. Hey, here's some discount Viagra. You know, whatever it was. It's You'd get comments on your blog, and that's how you kind of, that's kind of how you took the temperature, you know, and you knew what was hitting and what wasn't hitting and what subjects people wanted to hear you talk about or read you talk about, <laughs> read you write about, I guess. Um, but with social media, it's different. And I think that since I am kind of a dinosaur and an analog fellow, uh, I never really made the jump when I started the blog. You know, it would have been smarter for me to maybe announce that a blog was happening and then start a blog and then promote a blog, but I didn't. I actually had several months of blogging without really uh, entertaining the notion that there might be an audience out there, I just have to go find it, and I have to let them know that there's something that they might be interested in, or or not. <laughs> you know, I, I do take a lot of pictures, so you can always trust uh, trust me for, uh, for some decent uh, story uh, images, I guess, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, so... You know, you get this one hit, and it's just, it blows your mind, and it's very satisfying. And then, you know, you get to the point where maybe there's five hits, so two and a half people <laughs> have seen your work that day. And it's just, it's very, very satisfying. Then you, we bring social media into this, and I start sharing, and I start following people. I start getting followed back, and, you know, stuff starts really picking up. And the notification sounds start, you know, ticking every, you know... Uh, several times a day, we'll say Not often You know, it never got to the point where it was Very often But uh, a few times a day There'd be a little bloop You know, somebody liked whatever Somebody liked whatever Somebody followed you here And uh, these are very, very, very And not to be too repetitive They're very satisfying uh, It's a very satisfying feeling It's a very fulfilling feeling To understand that Something you did, and coming from someone who has been as cloistered in his own thoughts and words and sounds <laughs> for so long, uh, actually stepping out and uh, getting a reaction at all uh, really drove me to, uh, to continue. And there it is, you know, uh, the addiction sort of begins, and you can see that this is feeding a need, um, and you can look at things. Uh, not to not to go back into the undergrad here, but uh, there are things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a pyramid. The bottom, the foundation of the pyramid, are your foundational needs. So, food. You know, the, the very very foundational needs of your life. Your next step up is you know the needs you can attain after your bottom needs have been met. So once you're fed, once you have a house. Uh, you know, you can try for socialization. You could try for a family. You could try for emotional needs. Once those are met, you can go up another level, and it could be, you know, success with in whatever aspect uh, or whatever field. And, you know, and you get to the tippy top of this pyramid, which nobody ever does, 
but it's uh, that's your self-actualization. That is your perfect self, is to to fill the entire pyramid of Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. And the beauty of Maslow's uh, of Maslow's pyramid is that you can use it and apply it anywhere. You know, you can apply the hierarchy of needs to any piddly aspect of of your life. It could be a hobby. It could be a, it could be like we're talking about now. It could be a blog, where you know, let let's let's do that. We have a you know you you have your hierarchy of needs as a blogger. At the very bottom, you have your foundation. So you need a computer. You know that that you need a computer to in order to create. Um, you need. You need time. You need the time to create. Because without the time, you're not going to create. Without the hardware, you're not going to create. And then the third one, I'd say, for the bottom uh, foundation of the uh, hierarchy of needs for bloggers would be passion. I tell you, I, I've read I've read a lot of comics blogs. I've, read a lot, I've listened to a lot of comic shows. And uh, there's a lot I can forgive. I can forgive poor research. I can forgive... Uh, Misspellings in blogs I can forgive bad grammar Because my grammar is the worst uh, I, One thing I, I have a trouble getting past Is a lack of passion I mean, you, you gotta care You gotta care about what you're talking about Or what you're writing about Because if it's clear That it means something to you I'm gonna forgive just about everything else You know, you could tell me that uh, Swamp Thing was created by Scott Snyder and as long as you're passionate about the source material, you might not be as knowledgeable about it as you promote, but knowing that you care is, generally speaking, it's enough for me. If you have bad audio quality, I will suffer through it. If I can tell that you are passionate about what you're discussing, and because uh, passion is, uh, is infectious, it's uh, contagious, your passion will, you know, hopefully... Blossom into other people's uh, A passion for your the subject you're discussing And uh, I think that that's a very, very important part Of the the blogging and content creating hierarchy And once, you know, all those are met uh, you, can, you can move up to the next level of You need an audience, you know uh, A lot of what we do uh, and, I, and I've talked to a lot of bloggers about this Because it's a very common... Uh, I don't want to say frustration, but I, I guess it is kind of a frustration. It's a, you know, a lot of it is a, you know, a tree falls in the forest sort of a situation where, you know, if nobody's out there to uh, to hear it, then does it really happen? You know, if nobody, if you write, if you spend hours working on a blog piece or or putting together a show and nobody reads it, interacts with it, listens to it, did, did it even happen? <laughs> you know, you know what happened, and you might have had a great time doing it. But on the other end of things, well, you know, it doesn't really amount to a hill of beans. And it, uh, if we if we were to treat this part of the hierarchy as sort of a uh, as sort of a cycle, you know, the audience kind of feed it could feed the passion, or an audience might help you to find the time, you know. Uh, you know, the hardware is the hardware, but, you know, those other two aspects of that bottom foundational layer is time and passion. And if you have an audience that is engaging and is really in with what you're doing, 
that could feed your passion. So it could become like a, uh, you know, an Ouroboros in a way. And also, if people are engaging, you might actually find time where you didn't know you had it because you're prioritizing it. It might be at the uh, expense of something else in your life. And, uh, you know, everything is Robin Peter to pay Paul in life. So it might just be uh, something that you should be doing that you're going to be neglecting. But we're going to put this all in a vacuum here. It's, this is all about the blogging and content creation hierarchy of needs. But, uh, and, I, and I think the pyramid is probably only three layers. You have, you know, all your foundational needs. You have what that behooves or begets and what might further feed. And then on top, you have your actualized, uh, happy, <laughs> content-creating self where everything falls into place and everything is, uh, everything's really great. And so here I am, you know, creating content every day, getting a handful of satisfying, you know, notification beeps on my computer every day. Um, I've talked about getting into a Superblog team-up, where that was the first day I actually had to turn my notification sound off because it was just coming every, you know, every couple minutes. I was getting a new notification blip. So it was just like, okay, this is really feeding a need in me that I didn't realize that I had and in all the while here, I'm kind of working on this project in the background for school. And it's just like, okay, I, I get it. You know, I understand why uh, people can uh, take comfort and solace in this sort of a thing, which blew my mind because just a couple of years before this, I, like I said, I was that snobby idiot at the at the gatherings, being like, "How can you, you know, how, you sheep, you know, how how can you be into that kind of thing, you know, you know, go outside, you know, throw a ball, you know, that kind of stupid crap." But uh, here I am, gave it half a chance, and kind of kind of found a place in it, and therein is my big mistake uh, because. I very rarely start things the right way. Uh, usually when I start something, it's because I fell into it or because I uh, did something on a whim and then stuck to it, kind of like this entire content-creating quote-unquote career, I guess, uh, where it was just a means to an end that turned into something else. It was never something I set out to do. And, and, I mean, I, I, and, I, and what I've done is really... It's a body of work, but it really doesn't amount to a whole lot. I mean, it is what it is. It's a it's a niche of a niche of a niche blo uh, blog that's only getting nichier as we continue. But uh, I find that I wasn't getting exactly what I wanted because you know, like we talked about with the sleeping pills, you know, you 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 get a tolerance, you know, and uh, suddenly those handful of blips. That I was getting uh, I needed more You know, I wanted more it, You know, you need to feed it You need to you need to feel growth You need to uh, I, I really, there's no other way to say it you, you need the fix You know, you need that fix throughout the day Just so you know people realize that you're you're there You know, it, because otherwise What's the point? And again, that's very unartisty and goes against everything I really stand for as a content creator and what a lot of people, you know, stand for as a content creator. But, you know, it, it feels good. It, there is satisfaction there. 
and here I am like a hypocrite writing about the uh, evils. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe evils is a little too uh, a little too strong a word, but uh, the uh, the slippery slope. I sh- I, I suppose uh, you know how you can fall into something uh, like this. You can fall into this sort of kind of imaginary world where you're sort of kind of uh, a different sort of entity and. And, and this is, uh, you know, just another one of my mistakes is that I never, I didn't join this for the right reason. I didn't join up with, uh, with the application for, for any reason that, uh, that I think is healthy. I did so for research, and I also did so for promotion. And uh, so, so, and only I knew about the research aspect of it, but... Anybody else just sees me as a as a huckster, as a promoter, as someone who has something to shill, regardless of whether or not you're paying for it. You're, I'm still shilling every single day, and uh, I feel like that makes me less of a citizen uh, of the uh, of an application and more of I don't know a pariah. <laughs> It's just like, I, I know if I saw my stuff every day, I'd be like, oh, this guy again? Would he stop? Because it's just a, it's just nonstop promotion. And when you do nonstop promotion, you start to gauge, you use, you start using your, in, your engagement for, uh, as sort of a metric. So, like, if I do... If I review a Green Lantern book and it gets five likes, and then I the next day I review a Superman book and it gets eleven likes, and if I do a Flash book the next day and it gets two likes, it's like, well, why, why, you know? And because I did this the exact wrong way, I did this as a a disembodied blog rather than an, a person who has a blog. This is a uh, you know you start to you start to question everything and you start to write for your perception of an audience because you know when you get when you get that deep and you get that addicted and you get that uh, you you get to the point where you really need the fix you try to get the fix by any means necessary so if I see that okay people really like it when I talk about Superman I gotta talk more Superman you know which goes against doing it for myself and it goes more toward doing it for an audience that may or may not care. Because one thing, you know, that you, you don't really think about or I didn't really think about is that I think the average, the average user of a social media site follows, you know, several hundred people. You know, that's a lot of people to follow. And if what the one thing I send out gets lost in the shuffle... I mean, I can't take that personally. It just happens. It's just the nature of the beast. It's it's just the flow of a timeline. And it's it's sometimes hard to separate that. It's sometimes hard to realize that. And it's hard not to take something like that personally sometimes, even though it's the wrong thing to do. It's uh, It just becomes a monster. And you start to question, like, well, why, why didn't they like this one? Why you know I, I, this is this is another Superman one? Why didn't they like it? And then you get this like weird and and very unfounded resentment. It's like well you know well, screw this you know <laughs> why am I uh, why am I doing what they want me to do when they're not even responding to it? And and it gets very 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 unhealthy. 
and it's easy to become embittered and it's easy to wonder you know where you stack up or if you stack up i mean it's just a it could really become a monster if you let it and for a little while there i did actually for a long while there i did it became sort of a love hate sort of a situation where i felt like i needed to do it uh, just because you know i needed the fix i needed to know that people were seeing what i was doing people were listening to what i was saying or people were reading what i was writing and it uh it just becomes a monster and you know it it gets to a point where you, you, you the passion starts to dwindle because you're doing it for the wrong reason and i think i started doing it for the wrong reason i i de- the blog became a facilitator for the fix you know uh, i did the blog so i could share it it wasn't the other way around i didn't share a blog because i wrote it I wrote a blog so I could share it, and uh, that's never, that's never what you want to do. I, and I mean, you know, the the silly thing is, is I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing this for fame. I'm not doing this for anything. It's just, it's just a silly comic book blog. But uh, you feel it when uh, when it just goes into the void. It's something that I've talked about with uh, with a lot of other bloggers where you feel like. You know, there's a pointlessness to it, and that there is just this, uh, it's very, uh, and I've used this to explain blogging and content creating in general. It's a very lonely thing, you know, and at the end of the day, it doesn't really mean much to, it doesn't mean as much to the people engaging with it as it does to you. And you need to, you need to understand that, or I need to understand that, because uh, sometimes it's easy to lose sight. Of that, and uh, I'm guilty of that more often than I'm not. I think about milestones. You know, I did my 1,000th uh, daily post a uh, year ago. Oh boy! And uh, you know, when you finish, when you finally hit publish, you know, you figure like confetti's gonna start falling from the ceiling, and uh, you know, noisemakers are gonna start sounding, and trumpets are gonna play, and the dancing girls are gonna walk in. You know, it's and it's not, you know, it's, uh, you hit publish, and, uh, I was sitting at my kitchen island, and I leaned back, and I was like, okay, what, what am I doing tomorrow, you know, it was just, uh, <laughs> a slap in the face of, with reality, you know, that, it's just a thing that happens, you know, it's not, uh, it doesn't amount to, uh, a whole heck of a lot, especially when you consider that, like I said, this is just a comic book blog, life is, uh, has so many more things to worry about and so many more things to celebrate than me talking about a comic book or anybody talking about a comic book. But, uh, but you know, if you do or did go to the blog or if you do or did listen to this show, I love you. So I uh, uh, thank you all so much for that. Now, uh, if you do follow me on, uh, on Twitter, uh, which is, you know, the only social platform that I really use, because uh, it's the only one I really understand. I, I don't even understand it, but I understand it better than I understand the other stuff, so it's kind of where I stick around. But uh, you might have noticed, you might not have noticed, that I, I just, I haven't really promoted the blog for I'm almost a month now. I really haven't, uh, I haven't done the daily, you know, reminder. I haven't had to rip off song lyrics or think of a you know, a pithy little uh, quote to put above the uh, the review announcement. 
And I did so, I stopped doing so for uh, a few reasons, because I, I hit a point, I hit like an all-time low in engagement uh, just a little while ago, and it's understandable, because what I'm doing now with the blog is, like I said, it's a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche, because it's just Action Comics Weekly. And I understand that that's not the most interesting stuff in the world. That's even reading it for the you know umpteenth time now. It's just like it's it could be a slog. And when you do when you cover like a serialized sort of a story, it's hard to find new, novel, and interesting things to say about it. Um, you know, if like Black Canary goes to the club one week and then she goes to a play the next, it's like, well, okay, she went to a play instead of a club. What am I supposed to say about that? You know, it's a uh, it's dreary. <laughs> it can be very, very dreary. And it just so happens that I find myself having the hardest time doing this at the same time that I'm having the hardest time having people care that I'm doing it. And that's okay, you know, because, like I said, this is a very, very deep niche. And not everybody is going to care about, you know, the, the Nightwing and Speedy story from 1988. Not everybody's going to care about that. And I understand that, and I get that. But, you know, you still need the fix. And I wasn't getting the fix. So, rather than put it out there and not get any sort of reaction, and then get kind of frustrated and kind of down on myself for it, I just decided, hey, you know, maybe it's time to become less of an entity and more of a human being on these platforms. You know, maybe it's time to actually engage with people in a way where I'm not hammering them over the head with promotion. And please read this or please listen to that. Maybe I can actually be a human being and and share more. Kind of like I do here on the show. You know, I can share different aspects of... You know, because, you know, believe it or not, I'm actually not a coffee cup with the DC logo on it. That's (laughs) the avatar I use on Twitter, but it's not me. Uh, I'm actually a human being, and, uh, you know, I I think maybe I should uh, show more of that. I think I should, uh, you know, use these platforms, or this platform, because it's the only one I get, the way it was intended to be used, and that's uh, maybe I could be, uh, you know, a better person, a better friend, um, just uh, all around have a better time, rather than being an embittered (laughs) and somewhat resentful content creator, I could actually engage with people, and I can actually, uh, I can actually make myself a friend to people, where I don't know if that's how I'm seen now, I don't know if it's just, oh, here's this guy promoting again, and, uh, clearly I've spent way too much time both thinking and talking about this, but, uh, it's just interesting how, what a difference the outside and the inside is, because, uh, you know, going way back to, oh lord, 50 minutes ago uh, When we started this discussion uh, I saw this sort of a thing as something that It would be easy for kids to get stuck in It would be easy for kids to uh, become addicted to In a way where I really never just never gave it a shot I never gave it the opportunity And when I did, I found out that, oh, you know I, I like that little, that little notification thing And, uh Hey, you know, oh, somebody followed me. I love that. How about that? That's crazy. You know, it's just it becomes a uh, a, a monster, 
if, if you let it. And uh, right now I'm working on trying to, you know, slay that monster. I'm not looking to stop using the platform. I'm just looking to stop using it the way that, uh, that I have been using it, which isn't terribly productive for me. And it's, um, you know, when frustrations from something as silly as this start to rear their head in your regular life, it's t- it's when it's time to uh, reassess. It's when it's time to take a step back, and uh, you know you do you you do your me search. You know what bothers you. You know what doesn't bother you. You know what's going to and I hate using the word trigger, but you know what's going to trigger you. So you you stop, and uh, so far so good. And that's not to say that I'll never share anything I create again. I'm probably going to share this episode, and hopefully it finds its way. To you, And clearly it did, if you're listening to these words coming out of my mouth and into my somewhat useless pop filter. But, with all that said, uh, let's go into the other cornerstone of my undergrad studies, which is uh, forensic psychology with a focus on missing children. It's Lois Lane in When It Rains, God Is Crying. Lois Lane number one, August 1986, cover date, When It Rains, God Is Crying. Two chapters in this first issue, chapter one, Ignorance Was Bliss, chapter two, Dark Realities. Written by Mindy Newell, art by Gray Morrow, lettered by Augustine Moss, colored by Joe Orlando, edited by Robert Greenberger, had a cover price of $1.50. And, uh, you know, I found this book not too terribly long ago. I think it was right around the time... That I started the blog, and uh, yeah, I, I've mentioned a time or two that I, I would sometimes consider myself a you know a half-assed comics historian or of sorts, where it would take a lot to surprise me, you know. And uh, I had never seen nor heard of this uh, of this two-parter before I found it at a at a record store in a milk crate of all places. So uh, it really jumped out at me, and uh, and just blew my mind. It was just like, I never knew that this was a thing. So, uh, I had to grab it and, uh, wanted to discuss it because I thought it was just such a, such a strange, uh, little, you know, timepiece for, uh, that nebulous time around the crisis. So the issue opens, uh, we have Lois ending a date with a fellow named Jeff. She observes several police cars speeding off, and uh, considering the late hour, she decides to abandon her date while borrowing his Jaguar to give chase. She follows them down to the pier and sees a group of officers and detectives looking out into the drink. Inspector Henderson attempts to corral Lois into the sanctioned press area. However, she asserts herself and is able to get a better view of what they're trying to pull out of the water. Fellow Daily Planet reporter Bob Harley is unhappy to see Lois both covering his beat and getting special treatment from the inspector, and ain't that always the way. He calls editor Ed Burns at the Planet and tells him what's going on. Burns, in turn, calls acting city editor James McCullough to pass on the information to him. McCullough is none too pleased to hear what Lois is up to, and he's also not happy with being woken up at that late hour. Burns is instructed to bury her story. Apparently, Lois is on some thin ice from an apparent botching of a Mideast interview she conducted, and she's been sidelined to reporting on the smaller stuff. We cut to a flight attendant attempting to make a phone call from the airport. We find out that she is Lois's sister, Lucy Lane, and she's trying to contact Lois so they may bury the hatchet. 
She gets Lois's answering machine and hangs up without leaving a message. She's headed to Metropolis anyway and just wanted to give her sister a heads up. Back at the pier, a body of a young girl is lifted from the water. Upon getting a closer look, Lois is struck with intense emotion. She describes the child as a grotesque parody of a Cabbage Patch doll. Lois and Henderson retire to his car to collect themselves. Henderson encourages Lois to go home for the evening and even offers to give her a ride. Lois accepts the ride, however, asks to be dropped off at the Daily Planet so she may begin her story. No word on what happened to Jeff's jag. Upon arrival, she is greeted by Burns, who informs her that whatever story she's working on, it will not get the front page of the next day's edition. He offers her one column on page 53, which is a, it will show up next to an ad for a Mother's Day sale on lingerie, no less. Lois begrudgingly accepts and is sent home shortly thereafter. Lois returns to her apartment and checks her answering machine. Among her missed calls is one from Lana Lang inviting Lois to join her and Clark on their movie date. You know, this uh, puts this in pre-crisis DC continuity where Lana and Clark are together. She notes the message of of a hang-up. You know, that was uh, Lucy's call. She notes that that actually happened uh, and comments that uh, someone doesn't like to talk to a machine. And I mean, who does? Uh, She also has a message from McCullough which demands an audience with her the following day. Morning comes, and we witness a discussion between McCullough and Burns. Ed informs McCullough that he complied with his demand and buried Lois's story, though he adds that he disagrees with the decision overall. He reinforces that Lois is an ace reporter and goes on to say that Lois's story could be a very good thing for the paper to run with. He left a copy of Lois's article for McCullough to read. And McCullough does read it and decides to run with it. However, with the Kavit, is Kavit the word? Kavet? Kavit? I don't even know how to say it. So yeah, with the Kavit, that it would be done his way, or not at all. He sends for Metro Life editor Janice Denton. Lucy Lane, meanwhile, shows up at Lois's apartment, however cannot get buzzed in. Lois sleeps through all the doorman's attempts at contacting her, and Lucy gives up and decides to try to connect with Lois at the office, and that wraps up Chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts with Lois experiencing nightmares about what she'd witnessed the night before. She wakes up to find out that she'd overslept and heads right into the office. She attempts to get more information about the case and the victim from Inspector Henderson, but is unsuccessful. She asks if dental records have been checked, even though they have not yet determined a cause of death. Lois is clearly becoming obsessed with this story. Her assistant, Justin, provides her with a stack of paperwork he procured from the morgue, things that weren't yet inputted into the computer system. Uh, The discussion is interrupted by McCullough, who lambasts Lois for her tardiness. Meanwhile, at 344 Clinton Avenue, Clark Kent and Lana Lang are having breakfast. And again, this is uh, during a time where Clark and Lana are co-anchors of the evening news, so pre-crisis. Their meal is interrupted by somebody at the door. It's Lucy Lane, seeing if Clark knew where Lois might be. Clark calls the planet and finds out that Lois is there, hard at work, and the whole office is gossiping about what she's up to. The three head out to the planet. We rejoin Lois and McCullough, now in his office, arguing about her story. Lois threatens to quit and take her story to the Eagle, and McCullough informs her that MetroLife editor Janice Denton would be working with her on the story. This infuriates Lois, as the MetroLife section is more of a lifestyle supplemental reg, you know, like uh, the thing that they shove in the Sunday paper, I guess. It concentrates more on fashion and health, not really hard news, uh, and Lois knows that her story is hard news and really belongs at the front of the paper. 
She storms out, intending to visit Child Search Incorporated in New Pulse to try and get more information for her story. Now, at the time, I did a little bit of digging on Child uh, Child Search Inc., and it appears to be several organizations using this name in the United States. However, at the time, I was unable to find one in New Pulse, New York, which doesn't mean that there wasn't one. Uh, In a written piece included in this issue, uh, Mindy Newell does make a reference to this organization and its New Pulse location, so... Maybe during 1986 or the mid-80s, there was one there. The phone number for the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children is prominently displayed on a poster in the lobby, and uh, it's actually the same number for the organization, 1-800-843-5678. It's also on their website, and uh, it's a website that I spent a lot of time on when I was researching uh, the Amber Hagerman case. Uh, It's a wonderful resource, uh, but it's also an unfortunate necessity. So it's, you know, it's great that it's there, but it sucks that we need it. Uh, She meets with a Kate Brinkley. Uh, I couldn't find anything about her to see if it was a real person, but considering the way the story's going, I kind of think she might be. Uh, And Lois is given some statistics. She's told that two million children are reported missing each year, and most of them are runaways. They discuss children being abducted by a divorced parent and uh, those taken by strangers. Uh, Those are now referred to as non-family abductions. Now, a little bit of a personal research tidbit here. I was pretty shocked to find out that uh, for non-family abductions, the first three hours after the abduction are the most critical, because within the first three hours, around three-quarters of abducted children are reportedly killed. That's just sobering, shocking, and uh, wildly unpleasant. Now, Lois and Kate are joined by a family reporting a missing child. And a really, really good bit of realism, Newell depicts his family as imploding. They blame each other for the abduction. Uh, They're really reaching for the blame here, you know, which strikes me as something that would really happen. You know, with something this potentially gruesome, people will say nearly anything to assuage themselves of any guilt and to affix guilt to someone else because sometimes, you know, the person who's guilty, you're never going to see. And you you have that need to blame. You have that need to lash out, so you just do. And uh, it feels very real to me. And uh, kudos to uh, to Mindy Newell for for including it. Uh, Brinkley cuts them off quickly, telling them that this is not time for recriminations, telling them to redirect their hostilities in a positive direction. The character of Kate is written incredibly well, I gotta say. Uh... Uh, this is the way such a person should be written. She's steady, she's calm, she doesn't let emotion of the moment cloud her and overtake her. It really feels like uh, Mindy did did a lot of research here, which is uh, just wonderful for this kind of a story. Uh, because it, 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 it educates, but it doesn't lecture, which I think is the, the perfect way to do this kind of a story. All the while, we've got Lois dutifully taking notes. The family shares the story of how their baby daughter went missing. The parents left their young son and baby daughter in the car while they ran into a restaurant to grab some hamburgers. Having something as benign as a hamburger run be the impetus for an abduction really drives home the point that abductions can occur anywhere and they also can and will occur quickly. A couple of men approached the family car, punched out the young boy, and took the baby girl. We rejoin Lucy, uh, now walking through a park in Metropolis. She witnesses a child standing with a police officer. The officer blows his whistle and informs the people present that the young boy he is standing with had become separated from his mother. His mother charges up and reclaims the boy, initially seeming thankful, though she berates the young lad for embarrassing her as they walk away. 
Seeing this helps Lucy make an association, and she thinks she might be able to help Lois with her story. Lois arrives home only to find Lucy sitting on her couch. Their reunion is pretty contentious, and uh, Lois excuses herself to go take a bath. Lucy follows her into the bathroom and tells her she thinks she can be of help. Lois, as Lois does, she scoffs and puts Lucy down. Lucy leaves, and uh, we're left with Lois sitting in the bathtub, and that is how the first issue ended. We'll jump right into Lois Lane number two, cover dated September 1986. This is chapters three and four of When It Rains, God Is Crying. Chapter three is Quicksand, and chapter four is Bless This Child. Same creative team, writer Mindy Newell, art, Gray Morrow, letters, Augustine Moss, colors, Joe Orlando, edited Robert Greenberger, and cover price $1.50. So, chapter three. It's apparently three weeks later, and city editor McCullough is asking MetroLife editor Janice how Lois's story is coming along. Janice expresses a bit of frustration, claiming Lois to be impossible, and she even offers to kill the story. McCullough declines and offers a few more days. Lois is meeting with Inspector Henderson at the police station, and she is furious to find out that Bill is planning on taking a three-week vacation at some point in the near-immediate future. Bill warns her that she's getting a little too close to this case, and it would likely be in her best interest as well to take a break. Lois storms out, though as she approaches her cab, she asks herself if perhaps she is getting too involved in this. At the planet, Lucy Lane is reunited with Jimmy Olsen. I'm not terribly familiar with uh, the Lucy and Jimmy <laughs> relationship. Uh, but what, what they do, they, they sit down to coffee and they discuss the recent goings-on with Lois. Uh, the talk ends with Jimmy maybe jokingly proposing marriage to Lucy and uh, Lucy jokingly accepting? Uh, who knows? Uh, we rejoin Lois, who's conducting an interview with a Mrs. Zelinsky. This is a woman whose 20-month-old daughter was abducted and held for almost a year before she was found. It's a pretty chilling account of child abduction. Uh, you know, most non-family abductees are not kept alive for more than three hours, much less a year, you know? And if a child is kept alive longer and there's almost no attempts at a ransom, you can only imagine the reasons why this child might be kept alive, and that's uh, horrifying to, to consider just how many ways that could go. Now, Mrs. Zelinsky tells Lois that her now three-year-old baby girl is... Not a virgin. So, uh, yeah. The child was returned and is now relatively physically healthy. The child has some inner turmoil, however, unable to speak and appears to be very mentally broken, which, I mean, stands to reason. Upon return, the child was 10 pounds underweight and covered from head to toe in bruises. Lois finds out that Inspector Henderson was the lead on that Zelinsky case, which offers the reader a bit of insight as to his experience with these type of scenarios. Zelinsky tells Lois that Henderson wouldn't let up when it came to this case, telling us that he knows what he's talking about when he warns Lois not to become too involved. Lois has a contentious run-in with Lana and Clark at a nearby newsstand. Lana tells Lois that she will ensure that her story will be told. If not by the planet, she'll make sure it gets airtime on the evening news. Lois suggests she's only making such an offer in order to drive up ratings for her program and to, quote, grab all the glory again. Of special interest, Lana tries to tell Lois that she knows the pain of losing a child, a comment that Lois doesn't even appear to hear, but uh, that is some uh, interesting information to get. Now, back at the planet, Perry White is breaking everybody's backs over their lack of bringing in any interesting news of late. He even attacks Lois and lambasts her for acting more like a social worker than a reporter. 
He wants the missing children's story in print as soon as possible. Metro Life editor reels Lois' deadline in, only giving her five days to complete the assignment. Lois visits a suicide slum runaway shelter or halfway house called Haven House. There, she meets with a Mr. Cortez who is allowing her to sit in on some of their sessions. The first session features runaways, including young girls who wound up falling into prostitution. Girls who were give, who'd given up their freedom and any money they're making for a perceived safety at the hands of their keepers or pimps. Uh, the second session features adults whose children had run away. Uh, we hear the story of a father who is overprotective and controlling to the point of inflicting physical abuse to his daughter. Having had enough, she ran away never to be heard from again. This group facilitates facing and working through guilt for the father. Lois is called out of the session, and she's told that there's a man there to see her, and that man is Clark Kent. Chapter 4 opens with uh, Lois and Clark having a rather less-than-smooth encounter. It's alluded to that they had shared a romantic relationship somewhat recently, though wound up calling it quits. It's also mentioned several times in this issue that Lois Lane was actually dating Superman, not Clark, but Superman. I guess we'll just take their word for it. They really argue like a couple of people who, you know, care about each other. It's, uh, because they do, you know, uh, they, they know, they know the buttons to push to, to inflict pain on each other. And, uh, I gotta say here, uh, Gray Morrow's art does a wonderful job of showing, you know, the, just, just the emotion on their faces is just really, really good stuff here. Uh, we're treated to a page offering a juxtaposition between Lois and Clark's evening that night. Uh, Clark is surrounded by friends. Uh, he's got Lucy, Jimmy, and Lana with him. They dine together on a homemade meal and decide to take in a movie that evening. Meanwhile, Lois is alone and uh, waiting on her Chinese food to be delivered while she hammers away at her story. It's, uh, you know, uh, growing up, I was, you know, post-crisis, and Clark and Lois were always the thing, and... It makes these scenes like this uh, incredibly sad, you know, that <laughs> they are in just such different places. And it, it almost it almost paints Clark by no fault of his own as, as like almost an antagonist. It's very, very weird. Um, now, Inspector Henderson is being pressured to bury the child they dredged out at the pier. Bill is pushing back a bit, knowing that if the body, even though thus far it's unidentifiable, gets buried, the odds of pursuing the case will become even slimmer than they are now. Lois follows up on a tip, and she visits a Mr. Dillon. It's believed that the Dillon's daughter, Marcy, had been abducted. Mr. Dillon is not wanting to talk. He goes as far as having his maid call the police. Lois insists that they speak and offers to speak to Mrs. Dillon instead, if that would be easier. Dillon then forcefully grabs her before regaining his composure and apologizing, but he still, he, he still doesn't feel like talking. He would like Lois to vamoose. As Lois leaves, she tries to give the maid her card, asking that it be passed on to Mrs. Dillon. The maid informs Lois that she enabled Mrs. Dillon to leave with their child following a fight with Mr. Dillon. They are high society types, and they wanted to keep all of that mess out of the press. As Lois presses further, the police arrive and physically remove Lois from the premises. Lois takes a moment to reflect before returning to the office. The planet staffers be appear to be ignoring her. Lois is informed that the baby that a baby was stolen from a hospital nursery and its body was found in a nearby garbage pail, and so she heads out on the tip. Inspector Henderson is conducting his investigation of Baby Doe and is confronted by Lana, who is trying to get some comments for the news. Lois arrives and again makes the claim that Lana's actions are ratings-driven. Oddly enough, as Lois is lecturing, Lana invites her to have some coffee. 
Lana felt that she may have uh, may need a bit of support for the upcoming press conference. And uh, by she, I mean Lana herself. Lois does not appear to understand what any of this means, and uh, neither do we at this point. During the press conference, it's revealed that the baby taken from the nursery was in fact not the baby found in the garbage can. It's further revealed that one of the kidnapped baby's ears was delivered to the police department. All the while, Lana is growing more and more agitated. Upon hearing about the ear, Lana finally breaks down. Lois uh, helps her out of the conference. That uh, gets a little bit weird here, as I, I don't really have a frame of reference for this, so this might just be a new wrinkle in Lana's history. Uh, she confides in Lois that she recently been married and had a child while living in Europe. The terrorist group known as the Red Hand had kidnapped her baby boy and had sent her his ear. Shocked, Lois now understands that Lana did not have a ratings-driven angle for her involvement in the story. The next morning, Lois and Lucy attempt to mend f- fences. They ultimately decide to try and be friends. Lucy's leaving Metropolis anyway that evening, and uh, Lois invites her to the burial of the child from all the way in the beginning of the story. Lois, Clark, Lucy, Lana, Jimmy, Janice, and Henderson are all present at the proceedings. So, uh, yeah, long, dense, and rather intense. Uh, a very uh, mature take on, on Lois Lane here. And the first time reading this, I, I don't think that I was prepared for it. Um, each, each issue is 48 pages, so we're, we're looking at almost 100 pages of story here. Uh, yeah, I feel like I learned a lot more about Lois and her passion um, in this story than I have in all my years reading Superman books. It's uh, very strange. Um, Lois here, while a, a very uh, deep look into her psyche, she's still very one-dimensional. She's very much defined by her career. And, uh, and she is willing to go very, very deep into this story here where it begins to seep into her real life. It's, uh, you know, I can say from personal experience, this is a very human thing to happen, you know, on a much, uh, you know, nerfy and smaller scale. My take on the uh, long, cold Hagerman case is uh, it began to seep into real life, and you got to take that step back. Um, Now, before reading this, the lowest that I had known has always been, you know, the the infallible ace reporter, and... uh, and, you know, we open this with a, with a story about how she botched something, which really uh, lends to uh, viewing Lois in a different light, uh, more, more human than, than, you know, reporter robot. And, uh, and also, you got to consider that her ego probably took a bit of a thrashing here. And, uh, and for once, it wasn't because Clark scooped her on a Superman story, <laughs> you know. Uh, also, you know, add to that, that Clark and Lana are together and not Lois and Clark, it's, uh, it's weird. Um, the art here, I, 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 I'm going to mention the art in a little bit here, but it's, it's gritty, but it's like, it's very attractive art. Um, Lois is very, she's drawn as kind of disheveled, very, uh, just so, so driven to her end goal here that, I mean, she's wearing, like, baggier clothes, her hair ain't combed, it's just, it's very disheveled, but it, at the same time, there's a, there's a, a vulnerability there that's, um, it, it's just, it's very, very nicely done. 
you know, going back to these uh, Clark and Lana scenes here, it's like you can see Lois is trying to keep like a stiff upper lip, you know, and uh, like she understands that this is the new normal and that uh, this is, she just has to deal with it. And she doesn't want anyone to see her as being vulnerable or hurt. And again, this could just be me projecting, but the art does, just does a, a masterful job of showing that you could tell at any moment the veneer might crack and Lois could just, you know, double over and start crying. Um, a very sad story. This is a very sad story on almost every level here. Um, I really think, despite all that, I, that a lot of folks should read. Uh, and not just due to my closeness to the uh, subject, in, insofar as research, not any personal experience. I don't want to, uh, I really don't want to make myself sound like I have any kind of claim to this, because I've, I've never experienced anything like that, and knock on wood, I, I never do. But uh, I've done plenty of research on it. Uh, but uh, this one's very good. I think this is a, uh, it's an interesting, uh, mature way to examine Lois's character. Uh, look at her social dynamics, her place in the world, her uh, her ego. It's just very, very interesting. Um, Mindy Newell here does a, a wonderful job with this. Uh, I've only read a little bit of uh, Mindy Newell's work. Uh, I think it was some Catwoman stuff, uh, actually recently in Action Comics Weekly, or semi-recently. But in between the chapters of the first issue, there's a three-piece written, a three-page written piece by uh, by Mindy, where she discusses that she was almost abducted as a child, and uh, that tells you right there that this story means a lot to her, which also uh, lends to the uh, the idea that she did a lot of research. And this is 1986, so the internet you, you couldn't Google it, so she must have actually. And again, this is projection. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that she actually spoke with some of the people that appeared in these issues to get information. And uh, and I got to say here that uh, very, very talented in as far as telling the story here, because this could have been a simple PSA, but it wasn't. You know, this was actually a character piece, a deep character piece, and it addresses a challenging and very sadly real subject um gray morrow gray morrow oof this is just great uh his his art is fantastic um i mean these issues are predominantly talking heads and at no point was it boring and that's a real testament to his uh to his talents and everybody here is drawn to spec you know everybody you can tell who everybody is it's just it's just really, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, if we jump to the ending, uh, I'm not too sure how I feel about it. You know, on one hand, it drives home the message that some cases will never be solved. You know, you, that's something you need to come around to, is the understanding that, you know, cold cases exist, and cold cases sometimes tend to stay cold. Uh, go back to the Amber Hageman case, that's still a cold case, almost, you know, 20, 25 years later. Um... The late introduction and inconclusive nature of the baby doe cases uh, further gives the feeling that when it comes to child abductions, there isn't any downtime, you know, and loose ends will be left frayed. You're, you're not always going to get a clean closure. You're not going to get anything like that sometimes. On the other hand, however, I guess I, I was hoping for a happier ending, you know, or for lack of a better term, a happier ending, or at least a bit of closure. 
though, I mean, if you take if you take all ninety six pages into uh, into account here, that probably wouldn't have fit because there's always going to be missing children. You know, you can't really fix this sort of a subject in in a miniseries. And and while I would have liked a happier ending, I definitely have to give them uh, uh, tons of respect for not going down that route because. You know, you, you ratchet the realism up, and that's just the way things go. Now, the series did a great job of showing the reader the various forms of child abduction that did occur. We've got family abductions, non-family abductions, political abductions, runaways. And, you know, it didn't really linger too long on any given point, but it stayed long enough to, to help the reader understand through Lois's interactions with the people giving her this education. Um... Not much more to say about the ending. I will say that the second half might have been a little bit weaker than the first half. Uh, while that by no means is saying it's bad. It's still very, very good. Um, it feels like it might have been a little bit rushed. Um, the Lana reveal about about the uh, the political abduction and the ear being sent to her, that, that kind of that kind of just happened and then it ended. So we didn't really get much closure on that. Um, also, during this part, Jimmy and Lucy were writing a piece for Metro Life to help Lois, but we we don't really get anything more on that. It's just that they were helping her, and we don't know what came of it. Uh, we also had that scene at the planet where the staffers were ignoring Lois, but I don't know if there was any significance to that, because it was never followed up on, unless it was just a, hey, we don't like you right now, <laughs> and, and, you know, we don't need to tell you why. Um... Worth noting that the cover for the second issue is a little strange here. We've got Lois protecting three children from a shadowy person who's brandishing a pistol. No scene happens like that in this issue. Uh, makes me wonder if there was might have been something cut, or if uh, maybe the series was supposed to have more chapters. I don't know. It's a uh, it's a very strange cover uh, for uh, for a scene that just doesn't happen in the book. <laughs> That's about it. Uh, but overall. If you're able to come come by these two issues, or I, maybe it's been collected, I probably should have done research on that beforehand. But uh, these are these are pretty great. Uh, these are pretty great, and I would say they're worth your time. Um, it's certainly a different look at Lois, uh, especially the first time I read this. It was a, a completely different Lois than anything I had uh, I had considered. But uh, well worth your time, I'd say. If you see this. If you see this for a few bucks, grab it because it's uh, it's really good stuff, and uh, that's uh, that's about it. I think we're gonna forego the hot take this week. It just doesn't feel it doesn't feel like jumping into a letters page would uh, uh, do do us very much good right now. And also, the episode is running a little bit on the longer end. Uh, my voice is just about shot, so we will uh, we will forego that this week and. Uh, Go right into the ending. So if you'd like to get a hold of us, you could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can visit the website at chrisandreggie.com. If you want to visit the website that this show is named after, you could do so at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, if while you're there you see something you'd like to hear me talk about on the air, let me know and I'll throw it on the list. And also, if while you're there you see something that you'd like to talk about with me on the air, let me know and we'll see what we can work out. Again, I do have some guests lined up, but I am very, very bad about uh, sticking the landing on those sort of things. So it's uh, it, it, we'll get them done. We'll get them done. So it's all good. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at CosmicTmail, at ReggieReggie, and at Ace Comics. I want to thank you so, so much for sticking around, and uh, hope you enjoyed this visit as much as I did. So long for now. See ya. See ya.